From WPVM LP in Asheville, it's the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Katherine Campbell. And I'm Jonathan Ammons, and this is Arlo Parks. Even back in April, when the concept of a shutdown still seemed novel and surreal, there were a few branches of workers who never caught a break, 
who marched straight into the line of fire and continued doing their jobs in the face of a lot of uncertainty. I'm talking, of course, about the workers we've labeled essential. Your grocery store clerks and stalkers, the people who have made sure we have food and toilet paper, and importantly, booze during all of this. When writer and publisher Mackenzie Filson moved to Greensboro, North Carolina, she took a job at Trader Joe's, where she developed a particular penchant for their affordable selection of wines. That passion for guiding others to something good to drink has given her a new purpose in the midst of this global catastrophe. While everyone was hiding their feelings in yeasty sourdough, I'm still doing the less socially acceptable thing mid-pandemic, guzzling wine. I call it product knowledge, and the way your aunt has a, I'm outdoorsy and that I like to drink wine on patios, TJ Maxx wall hanging sort of a way. It is my hobby and my vice. My way to unstick the barnacles attached to me throughout a day of customer service and mask wearing while working at a Trader Joe's in very suburban North Carolina. I have a rule that I can't repeat the drinking of wines at work. Each time it must be new and expansive to my taste encyclopedia. So I tell myself. Each wine feels like I'm doing one of those matcha card games. Turning over each one to see if it goes with me, my mood for the evening, my taste buds need for dirt, oak, stone fruit. The wine section at our store composes a solid quarter of our shelf space. We've even relegated the beer section to an abridged, dusty corner. Trader Joe's still upholds its inherent Californianness, wanting to always appear to be a cozy neighborhood wine shop at all costs. Over time, I've realized that my taste in wine is as shifting as my tastes in a lot of things. Men and how they treat me, living situations, cities, a whole life mantra in bottles. Each time I have one, I realize a wine I adored before was just okay, this one dethroning it completely. I no longer drink bold for the sake of bold robitussin California Cabernets, reminding me of the two drink minimums while watching improv shows of a man I dated who was a bit too passionate about his intramural kickball team and needing to be the funniest person in the room. If a New Zealand Sauv Blanc doesn't make me feel like a petite woodland nymph drinking gooseberry juice out of a flower cup, it gets relegated to the just okay pile. Wine drinking while working at Trader Joe's has sharpened my observation skills. You can tell a lot by a cart full of groceries, six or more butter chicken frozen Indian meals, going through a divorce, mandarin orange chicken, veggie fried rice, dark chocolate peanut butter cups, first time shoppers, two cases of three buck chuck Chardonnay, the geriatric relegated to fixed incomes. $18 Mayomi Pinot Noir, a bit top shelf for the wine section, is code for, are you in trouble in your relationship? Whenever a customer asks me about what I think about the infamous three buck chuck, I counter it with neither praise nor critique. It's $3, I say with a neutral tone. I let them take this information where they will, whatever interpretation suits them. Like the mass market, choose your own adventure novel in a bottle it is. Wine is a way to never be wrong, something to moor myself to, that my taste is my own and infallible. Sure, I took my philosophy course requirement online in college, but knowing that taste is relative, my cinnamon will never be your experience of cinnamon, brings me a rare level of mid-pandemic hope for the democratizing power of wine. And then there's the issue of veritals, that everything can change every year, forever, especially as we find ourselves grappling with what feels like an infinite present. What bowled me over in 2017 might not impress me in 2021. It might taste too saccharine. The skins trapping too much wildfire smoke, clouding over the taste memory of bell pepper, lemons, sunshine, bug spray. 
I struggled with anorexia as a teen, requiring three hospitalizations that saved my life, but also built up a distrust in myself and my hunger cues and taste. Wine requires a level of intuition and forthright knowledge of the self. I mean, it's $9.99 and I work at Trader Joe's. It better be good and I better be great at describing why and what I like. Eating and thus living for taste makes me feel like I have direction and a foothold. Something that was hard to locate in the amorphous silent chokehold of anorexia, where taste could often be a source of punishment. The variables of taste and memory blur the possibility of snobbishness. Portuguese vino verdes are now afternoons spent in the neighborhood loquat tree, eating the little fruits and raining pits down to the ground. Glue wine in tiny paper cups shuffled through Chris Kindlemarkt in Prague, the cherries, cinnamon, and cupboard muddling together in unison. Sweet tart candy-coated Moscatos smuggled into hydro flasks to be drunk in secret at the local lake, laced with smeared-on sunscreen sweating downwards from my upper lip. New Zealand Sauve Blanc, my wine Enneagram type, if such a thing exists, is the feeling of running through sprinklers during a humid Floridian magic hour. In a time where racial and social inequities are at the forefront of my mind, tasting and suggesting wine has become this tiny democratizing pebble I can grip tightly. Oftentimes, the $12 bogle at Total Wine is masquerading around in plain clothes as a $5 figment red blend at Trader Joe's, something inaccessible becoming easily affordable to anyone from the college student to the country club mom. It's an open access program we can all plug into. No one is wrong. There are no sides to take. Whether it's three buck chuck or $58 stag's leap, both those wines will always scream to me, who hurt you in their own specific ways. When caught in the wine section at work, I have to suss out a customer's need for something off-dry, but not too sweet. Maybe bubbly? Are all your Riesling sweet? No. What wine do I drink when I don't want to drink? Moscato. The mother-daughter duos who try not to let me know they are having an illicit wedding in the age of Corona, who somehow need six cases of Cava and Brut. My wife bought it last week. It has a moon in the title, they say. But they all have moon in the title, Gary. I love challenges. I've never been an overachiever, so to be an authority on anything gives me a sliver of control for this godforsaken, haunted merry-go-round of a year. People often subtly look down at me for my place of work, not knowing that I've been schooled in ivy-colored buildings, but actively choose this job because I get to leave with a clear mind and a loose schedule that a 9-to-5 couldn't promise me. Upon writing this, we are six months into the pandemic, where grocery store workers have gone from being heroes to mere furniture fixtures putting cookie butter on shelves. I get to remind others through wine that I have some semblance of authority and a knowledge they do not possess, as well as no reason to see me as someone of lesser importance. The slow detective work of wine restores some of my personhood, and it's the only aspect of my job that's not laced with anxiety or with feeling like the lowest head on the essential worker totem pole. My knowledge makes me feel of use, a loose tether to why I loved this job before COVID-19 made it one of anxiety, hoarding, and customers telling us we're brainwashed for taking basic precautions. Wine is a way I learn about myself. Knowing now that I crave Chardonnay so ogie, it's like I've been hit upside the head with a two-by-four. Lingering in the wine section after close, I ask my bosses what to drink next. I want to taste Dirt Sam as a recent admission believing their wine choices could be their bottled essence. These very human people who have the same unsure immunity that I do, never showing the same fear I have. 
I've long had an obsession with hobbies. I acquired them like a hobby itself. And if it has gear, even better. My wine hobby has cut to the chase, no gear required. After each shift at the store, we are allowed five minutes to shop for our own essentials. And that is a wine in the sub $6.99 variety for me to taste test, swish, enjoy over Bachelor Presents, listen to your heart, hate watching sessions. All I need is a wine key and my Target nightgown, and I'm ready to imbibe. Let me also state what I know to be true, that within reason, drinking alone is not all that bad. Keeping in mind, my tolerance is quite low. After three glasses of anything, I'm hopping off to make out with the nearest street lamp. Especially when dining solo, drinking alone helps me distill the experience down to the bite-sized moments it ought to be, rather than the impulse to scroll my phone while waiting on my fish tacos to arrive. When sipping a South African Sauve Blanc laced with smoked char and gooseberries, I smell and hear things. I eavesdrop into the little spats held between old couples, arguing over how they couldn't find the spice mix they wanted at the specialty grocery next door. I hear the behind yous of the waitstaff, see the steam rising from freshly cleaned glasses from a dish rack. I stretch the muscles that often don't get worked when with other people. Australian Cab Shiraz summons the warm, cozy Girl Scout camp feeling of being amongst my favorite gal pals who live thousands of miles away. With cigar char and cherry notes, I'm drinking my own witch's brew. I'm under my own spell, my body and mind slackened by the glass. I start to feel like that version of Mickey Mouse in Fantasia, where he uses his hands to wash waves up inside his flooding cottage. But for me, it's ushering feelings of power, warmth, artificial confidence. I am not an easily sensual person, in that I do find it hard to immediately tap into the part of alter ego me who looks and acts like Nigella Lawson, licking her fingers after dipping them in chocolate, wearing coquettish wrap dresses, winged eyeliner, a cheekiness I have to fight hard to summon. I can be too organized, fussy with details, things have to be right, little silences between myself and another filled with noise and distraction. Wine absolves all of that for me in a half glass. I linger. I grow quiet. I mole. There's a new game I enjoy playing, one that calms me. It involves imagining a reopened yet very different world. A world where sexual attractiveness might be lent to men who smell faintly of rubbing alcohol and distillery sanitizer, who have a respectable amount of toilet paper at home, not too much, restaurants and bars with less seating that feels more intimate a dim sum conveyor belt of dishes waiting to be grabbed individually. Wondering if the red marks on my nose are from my work face mask, or if it's from my nose becoming perpetually sunburnt from drinking spicy Spanish garnachas on my front stoop after work. Brooke German reading Mackenzie Filson's Drinking While Essential. You can find it and all of our backstories at our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant, founded in 1979 by the pioneering Mark Rosenstein and reimagined by Chef William Disson a decade ago. The Marketplace Restaurant is back open and serving its farm-fresh foods with socially distanced tables, outdoor dining, takeout, and adherence to all COVID guidelines. Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant, The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region and our farmers have to offer. For more information on our underwriters or to find out how you can support us through our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com.
Back in 2010, after a devastating earthquake that tore through the landscape of Haiti, the legendary chef Jose Andres acted quickly. He knew what most of us that work in the restaurant industry have come to understand, that a small group of organized cooks can feed a lot of people a lot more quickly than a bureaucracy. Armed with gargantuan paella pans and burners, Andres and his plucky band of volunteer cooks made meals for thousands of people every day until official systems could be put in place to help take care of them. He called it the World Central Kitchen, and since that disaster, they have fed millions of meals to victims of countless tragedies. In the midst of the current global catastrophe, World Central Kitchen has been even busier, both responding to the crisis and trying to save independent restaurants in the process. World Central Kitchen CEO Nate Mook seems to thrive on the unpredictability of his role. The organization, often referred to as WCK, has served over 30 million meals to date to individuals in the wake of natural and man-made disasters. Mook spends each day not knowing exactly what disasters could be heading their way or where they're going to be needed on the ground. The nonprofit has teams in California working on the wildfires, a team in Cancun for the recent hurricanes that ravaged the area, and teams in other places around the world. When we spoke, Mook and his team were looking at heading down to the Gulf of Mexico at Louisiana for a forming hurricane. You know, I, I think a key piece of World Central Kitchen, really at the core of, of our mission, who we are, is our adaptability. Um, mm -hmm. It's it's our, you know, it's the recognition that uh, things can change on a dime and you have to prepare and you have to know what you're going to do. At the same time, equally as important as you have to be ready to completely throw out your plans and come up with something new on the fly. You know, since, since that day that we... We started in Puerto Rico three years ago, over three years ago now. We There has not been a day where World Central Kitchen hasn't been cooking somewhere in the world for a disaster <laughs> or a humanitarian crisis. So I think it just, you know, it just it, it goes to show you the need is, is quite high, so. World Central Kitchen has close to 50 employees, growing dramatically from three years ago with just a couple people on staff. They are what Mook calls a real global organization, now with employees in Colombia, Venezuela, the U.S., and recently Beirut. With COVID, like many organizations, World Central Kitchen has seen many big shifts in operations. They also responded to COVID early on, heading out to Japan to a cruise ship quarantined there in February of last year. We were responding to COVID very early on, actually. Our team went out to Japan uh, when one oh, of the cruise right. ships was quarantined in February. So while nobody in, in the United States was really paying much attention to, uh, to, to the coronavirus, COVID word didn't even exist at the time. Right, yeah. The coronavirus, um, wow. you know, we, we knew it was coming. Um, so we began to prepare. We developed new protocols for preparing meals, for distributing meals um, in, uh, um, uh, out in Japan, which then we were able to bring back to the United States when COVID obviously started to spread here, um, and especially in New York City, where the first big city that we, that we expanded to as, as COVID started to hit in March and April. World Central Kitchen began preparing, developing new protocols that they brought back to the U.S. when COVID started to spread here. The pandemic completely changed the way they serve meals. Before, they would set up a place where people could congregate together, and now meals are individually packaged with strict rules for distribution and preparation. 
We even have a mascot named Masky, Mook added. The illustration was designed by an artist in Spain, the home country of World Central Kitchen founder Jose Andres. Before COVID, World Central Kitchen responded to natural and man-made disasters. Most occurred in limited geographical areas. With the widespread coverage of COVID, the organization had to scale up dramatically to meet the needs of hungry families all over the U.S. The health crisis of COVID turned into an economic crisis, which then turned into a food crisis. Um, we've all seen the lines of people waiting uh, at the food banks or standing in line for, 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 for food, for meals. We see this every day in places like New York and Oakland and, and Chicago and, and the areas that we're working in New Orleans. So, you know, for us, um, it really is, uh, uh, you know, it, it is really, uh, we, we've had to grow dramatically to meet, to meet that um, and so we have teams, uh, you know, active all over the United States right now. We have a big team in Navajo Nation, uh, you know, places that we perhaps would have never thought we would have been before. Yeah. Uh, we've had big, big presence. World Central Kitchen is now serving 350,000 meals each day. One project the nonprofit launched during COVID is Restaurants for the People, a program that provides fresh meals to communities in need while keeping small businesses and restaurants open during the pandemic. World Central Kitchen quickly realized was that they can't be everywhere as they're a fairly small organization. As we were looking at the landscape as COVID started to hit the United States, one of the things that we realized very quickly um, is that um, uh, World Central Kitchen can't be everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. we're, we're a pretty small nonprofit. Uh, you know, we, we don't have, you know, 100,000 employees and, you know, unlimited money and we're not funded by the government. And so, you know, there's limited places that we can go and operate. So, but of course, COVID is everywhere. So how do you, how do you respond to something that's everywhere? And, and so, you know, as we looked at the circumstances, we said, well, you know, World Central Kitchen can't be everywhere, but we have restaurants in every community and every town across the country. So what if we could activate those restaurants to become community kitchens to support their own communities? And in the process, um, we can support those restaurants to stay in business during a time when they can't operate like normal. They piloted the program in D.C. in early March of last year and reached out to restaurants from fast casual to Michelin starred. Everyone was interested and seemed to know that Mook and his crew were onto something. World Central Kitchen started with the idea to have restaurants prep 1 million meals. They are now close to 12 million meals, far exceeding their expectations. There are Restaurants for the People programs active in over 300 cities across the country. Mook produced the HBO documentary Baltimore Rising before becoming CEO of World Central Kitchen. He had an extensive career as a filmmaker working in countries like Colombia, Kenya, and Liberia. In 2013, former President Bill Clinton utilized Mook's talents for his eight-country humanitarian tour. Uh, I mean, it's it's an honor. President Clinton is is an incredible uh, has an incredible legacy, and you know, I think there are possibly few people that have worked harder for for our country. Uh, than uh, President Clinton and, and Secretary Clinton. Um, so I was very fortunate to, uh, to be able to work with the Clinton Foundation as, as they were visiting some of their projects in, in Africa. 
Mook first worked with Jose Andres in 2015 when he conceived and directed the documentary Undiscovered Haiti, co-produced by National Geographic and PBS. Before working in film, Mook worked in the tech sector and was named a change hero by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation for his word with TED Talks elevating those in underserved neighborhoods. For November, World Central Kitchen worked on Chefs for the Polls, a nonpartisan effort using food to bring hope to communities on Election Day. We're seeing a lot of, um, you know, a lot of uncertainty and fear around voting. Uh, We've already had issues here in the D.C. area in Fairfax where um, you had intimidation going on, voter intimidation. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, our hope is that Look, if if we can provide a little bit of hope and a little bit of sense of community, uh, provide a hot meal to folks who are either having to wait in line or you know go out of their way to you know to get to to an early voting place or you know whatever it might be, um, you know we want to do that. We're not you know this isn't um, you know it's 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 not partisan. We don't care who you vote for. We just want to make sure that everybody is able to vote and there's nothing holding them back. And also, it's just a great way to engage the community. So it's not like we're going to require anybody to show that they voted to get a meal. You can just come up and get a meal even if you haven't voted. Um, You know, it's to support the community. But again, you know, to really provide um, a bit of an uplifting sense. Food has that power, right? Food has the power to uplift. It's It's a symbol. It's a message of hope. It's a message that things... You know, are going to get a little bit better. And right now, a lot of people in our country are struggling. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people are struggling to put food on the table. We still have tens of millions of Americans out of work right now because of COVID. And you know, it's it's been going on so long. It's easy to forget that like we're still you know in deep, deep in a, in the middle of an emergency. So you know, our our hope is to do you know to do this small small piece. Um, you know, Chefs for the Polls is 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 an example of, of our way to give back um, a little bit more to to the local communities and work with restaurants and food trucks and um, and and uh, and cities that you know that that are uh, you know as as they set up the polling stations and and we hope that you know again it can be a, a real sense of positivity during during a difficult time. That was Kate Ozapak with her interview of World Central Kitchen CEO Nate Mook. To find that story or catch up on our back episodes, head to our website, dirty-spoon.com.
Let's talk about picking fruit for a second, because I have never been to one of those you pick farms and I've always wanted to go. You've never been to one? No, I have always illegally picked fruit (laughs) or I've picked fruit that I grew myself. Huh. I know. I don't follow the rules. I mean, I don't think it's illegal if it's foraging, right? Yeah, that's true, but... You know, picking blackberries on someone else's property when that's, they're sleeping. That's totally illegal. That's yeah. illegal. That's illegal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> huh. That strikes me as odd because, like, you, you grew up in the country, so. Yeah. 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 And you would think that it was some kind of rite of passage, but fruit was always this elusive activity for me. You know, it was one of those things where you either try to find fruit really quickly or it's gone. Um, you know, or you're going up into the mountains and trying to pick the blueberries before the rest of the animals and people find them. Uh, so I just started growing berries and, you know, strawberries, blackberries, blueberries, peaches, those kinds of things myself. And, and it's, it's nice cause, uh, I have it all to myself. Yeah. I, I grew up, my uncle had a good friend who had all these raspberry and blackberry patches. Mm. So I grew up going up to visit him and picking just bucketfuls of blackberries and, and, and raspberries. And, uh, so I would like from then on, like in college and stuff, I could go find little brambles of those things in old houses up in Montreat <laughs> where I went to school and, and pick some of those. But, uh, yeah, our, uh, our next writer, Pat Tompkins, uh, spent some time in Italy on a study abroad program and it kind of reignited a passion for her growing up picking fruit and has just been a recurring thing for her in her life. Here's Ayanna Dusenberry reading Pat Tompkins' The Pleasure of Picking Fruit. I was a college student in Florence during April and May one year studying Renaissance art and cosmology. Our group of 22 students from Midwestern colleges lived at the top of an 83-step walk-up pensione at the intersection of five streets in the city center. When I wasn't dealing with Botticelli, Dante, and Galileo, I was coping with the less lofty new world of contemporary Italy. In addition to a recalcitrant hot water system and a curtainless shower that flooded the bathroom, I was adjusting to breakfast and dinner at the pensione. Most of the students slept in rather than bother with the breakfast, which consisted without fail of cups of yogurt, tutti frutti was popular, hard flavorless white rolls, and the only bad coffee in Italy. I believe the city got its water from the muddy Arno River. Whatever the source, the water was also tinting our laundry green. Cold curls of butter and plastic packets of jam added nothing to what we called pigeon rolls. That's all they were good for, lobbing at the pigeons so plentiful in Firenze. I didn't miss the ubiquitous American glass of orange juice, but I was accustomed to more variety. Dinner seemed to be a substantial improvement over breakfast, a thin soup, unsalted chewy bread, and pasta with minor variations such as the addition of cooked spinach. Dessert was fruit, baskets of mealy apples, and new to us, blood oranges. No one wanted the apples. Speed was essential if you hoped to snare an orange. Coming from California at the time, I was used to more fruits and vegetables, so I often visited Florence's outdoor market, where I bought small brown paper cones of raisins. And since my new college life in the middle of Iowa cornfields, I wasn't used to such an urban environment. Florence has a wealth of remarkable buildings, statues, and other public art, 
but I don't recall any trees in the heart of the city. The bubbly gardens across the river offered a highly manicured green retreat, far too formal for my taste. When we had a field trip one day that included a surprise stop, you can say I was ripe for the opportunity. Our day excursions by bus generally took us to other Tuscan towns, Siena, San Gimignano, Pisa, to admire their churches and art. On our return from Luca, our professore, an American of Italian heritage, announced that we would be visiting a family he knew in a small town. We stepped off the bus into a sunny May afternoon. Near the road was a small strawberry patch, maybe 50 feet square, with carefully weeded rows of plants. The ground was the same gold-tinged terracotta as the Palazzo Strozzi across from our humble pensione. When we met the Italian family, they told us we could help ourselves to their strawberries, an instant you pick them and eat them experience. Picking fruit is something I've done for decades, going back to childhood years spent in semi-rural Louisiana, in a place my family called living one step ahead of the jungle because of the abundant snakes, insects, tree frogs, crayfish, and other wildlife surrounding us. I would gather pecans, kumquats, and blackberries to bring home. I have continued to pick fruit, raspberries, peaches, olala berries, and other states ever since. That late spring in Italy, my Louisiana instincts kicked in. There may have been some miscommunication with the Italian family. Perhaps we were invited only to sample a fragola or two. Bending and squatting, we plucked the warm, fragrant berries and plucked and ate and plucked and ate. To the Italians, it must have resembled an attack of a murder of crows disguised in blue jeans. In short time, we had reduced the strawberry patch to green leaves. This is not surprising when you consider that our group included insatiable omnivores, aka 19-year-old guys, but all of us were hungry for fresh fruit. Our professor apologized for our voracious behavior, but the Italians seemed to appreciate our enthusiasm for their strawberries. Or perhaps they were simply polite, or in shock. I don't recall the name of the church we visited in Lucca, or unfortunately the name of the family whose strawberry patched we wiped out but I remember those berries. Last year, I moved halfway across the country to a small city I knew little about, not an optimal situation. Turns out, it's far less idyllic than its setting among rolling hills and vineyards. But among its pluses, wild blackberries thrive there. Roads on the outskirts are lined with the bushes, and this summer, I picked berries every weekend all season long you couldn't miss them. Yet I never saw anyone else picking berries. Apparently, a lot of people are missing the joy of juice-stained fingers snagged by brambles. Picking fruit is a primal pleasure, delicious and free. That is, if you're doing it for an hour or so, not as manual labor and back-straining long days. If an abundance of summer fruit burdens a friend of a friend with a garden or orchard, I might make jam with it. Plum, apricot, whatever's available, or a cobbler, or simply enjoy the raw fruit. As an apartment dweller without a garden, I depend on the generosity of those who garden for bags of lemons or pears. In my experience, gardeners are liberal in sharing roses, peppers, and tomatoes they've grown. Maybe with the bounty of a garden, I'd be more magnanimous. 
If I ever get to have a garden of my own, I like to think I'd be as generous as the Italian family whose garden I visited more than 45 years ago.
We're all familiar with career changes. For most of us, those happen by choice, when it's just simply time for a change. But for others, it comes more tragically. When an injury forced Josh McLafferty to give up his career as a deep-sea diver, his metalworking skills found him working on stills in the mountains of British Columbia, something that opened doors to a career in a business way out of left field. Here's Andrew Fletcher reading Clay Dyer's profile on Josh McLafferty and Monashi Spirits. Tucked in the Monashi Mountains of British Columbia, Canada, is the small town of Revelstoke, named in appreciation of Lord Revelstoke, the head of a British investment bank that saved the Canadian Pacific Railway from bankruptcy in the summer of 1885. Revelstoke's injection of much-needed capital ensured the new country's transnational railway would reach completion. It is a classic railway-come-resort town, gritty around the edges and home to a community of outdoor enthusiasts, avid mountain bikers and rock climbers, and even more avid snowboarders and heliskiers. It is also prime grizzly and black bear territory, a fact reflected in the art and sculptures that adorn the town streets. In a small, unpretentious building on one of these streets is Monashi Spirits, a family-owned, small-batch artisanal distillery that Forbes magazine has called Canada's best apres-ski distillery. Indeed, the space serves double duty as the town's signature cocktail bar with a classy, speakeasy vibe. But mountain legends are like archaeological digs. While the discoveries near the surface are always exciting, the deeper layers of the backstory are inevitably where some of the fascinating stuff lies. A Vancouver-based underwater welder and deep-sea diver by trade, Monashi's Josh McLafferty suffered a near-crippling injury in 2014 while riding motocross in the rugged mountains north of the city. Only 33 years old, he was confined to a wheelchair for a few months, his deep-sea career over, and his wife Jen pregnant with the couple's first child. With the future still uncertain, the couple moved inland in 2015, settling in the small town of Sycamus, about 45 miles west of Revelstoke. While Jen continued her work as a nurse, Josh picked up occasional welding jobs, doing what he could to keep his hands and mind busy. As the newcomer's unique skill in pressure welding copper became known, his shop became a destination of choice for local moonshiners. One project did not go quite as expected, however. When one mountain entrepreneur arrived to claim his repaired still, Josh heard the words that every freelance worker fears. I don't have any money to pay you, but... So, in exchange for his work, Josh took home a five-gallon bucket of molasses, along with a passing suggestion to distill it and make rum. The bucket sat around for about two months, so the story goes, until the couple, frustrated at being reminded of bad debt, decided to take the moonshiner up on his challenge. They had made homebrew beer and wine in the past, so had some basic knowledge, but neither had ever attempted to distill a spirit like rum. Undaunted, Josh fit a small copper still that was lying around his shop, and the couple experimented, tested, experimented some more until they ended up with a more than passable spiced rum. The seed for Monashi Spirits was sown with that serendipitous batch of rum. During a trip to the mountains in early 2017, the couple noticed a building for sale in Revelstoke's historic downtown. They acted quickly, selling almost everything they owned and bought the building, with the plan to turn their idea of an artisanal distillery into a reality. In March of that same year, Monashi Spirits Craft Distillery opened. It quickly gained notoriety through word of mouth and an enthusiastic community of followers across social media. 
Always with an eye on the bigger picture, the couple turned the upper floor of the building into staff accommodations, recognizing that rental housing in a resort town is limited and expensive. Initially one of the few certified organic distilleries in Canada, Monashi gave up its official certification in small part due to the ongoing cost and, in larger part, so that they could begin to harvest and use their own honey from their four-hive roof-type apiary. Securing organic certification for honey is still a tricky business in Canada, given the range that bees travel while collecting pollen. The plan is to partner with other local beekeepers to produce a Revel rum, as in Revelstoke rum, to raise some money for bee awareness and keep the local apiaries healthy and producing for years to come. Still, Josh is resolutely committed to sourcing as many of his ingredients as possible from local organic farms or for more exotic components like citrus through certified organic suppliers. A local farm, Fieldstone Organic, grows about 30 acres of grain just for Monashi on land only 58 miles as the crow flies from our doorstep, Josh explains. The distillery also partners with local farmers who can use the spent grains for nutrient-rich soil additives or as compost. Monashi's vodka provides the foundation for much of what they create. It is clean and crisp, made simply so that the spirit's authentic flavors can speak for themselves. It is also the base of Monashi's Vulcan's Fire, their trademark liqueur concocted from a vodka base infused with ambrosia apples, cinnamon, honey, maple syrup, and red Thai chilies. They also offer Big Mountain Creamer, a vodka-based riff on an old Irish standard that is made with organic BC cream infused with chocolate, caramel, almonds, vanilla honey, maple syrup, and locally roasted coffee. Most recently, they have added a lime cocktail bitters to their growing catalog. But Monashi's crowning achievement to date has been its aptly named Ethos Gin, the result of almost 30 trial batches that never hit the exact flavor profile that Josh had in mind. It's so unique, our flavor profile, he says. There is so much depth to what we are making, and it reflects the two years of work we put into it before releasing a single bottle. His obsessive diligence paid off. Ethos Gin was not only voted the best-in-class Canadian gin in the 2019 Canadian Artisan Spirit Competition, but scored the highest of any entry in the entire judging. The judge's notes burst with praise, calling it an expertly balanced gin that shows off the direction Canadian distillers are going with innovative flavor profiles without losing touch of the category. One judge waxed poetic about the delicately floral nose that evoked white blossoms, rose petal, orange blossom, a note of elderflower tinged with light pink grapefruit. Another said simply, a gin with tons of finesse. Monashi extended its winning streak in 2020, with Ethos Gin taking the gold medal with distinctions, along with an excellence in terroir award. Their garlic-infused vodka, another collaboration with a local grower, won gold plus best-in-class Canada, and their Bitter Hearts cocktail bitters also took home gold for best-in-class Canada. As Josh likes to say, these innovative flavors are part of the mountain twist that drives the Monashi philosophy. Taking full advantage of the mountain's bounty, the distillery draws freely on locally sourced juniper, coriander, huckleberries, spruce tips, and wildflowers, as well as a range of organic botanicals. These are spirits that are genuinely Tuareg-driven. When you are out in the woods, walking on a trail after a fresh rain, Josh explains, or when you're skiing in a glade and stopping or talking with your friends, I wanted to put that alpine mountain smell into a bottle. During the COVID crisis, 
Josh and Jen switched gears right away so that they could continue giving back to the community. With hand sanitizer in short supply locally, they took the heads from the distilling process, reduced the alcohol content to 80%, and started delivering bottles to local not-for-profits and residents with mobility issues or who found themselves homebound during the pandemic. They continue this project today, months into the pandemic. But I also filled up 12 barrels of whiskey during that downtime, Josh smiles. So we're going to have a special series that comes out in about three to five years to celebrate this year of challenges. Closed for 81 days during the COVID shutdown, Monashi Spirits never saw its ledger slip into the red. With new equipment on site and an expansion planned, the distillery and bar have reopened for business just in time for the prosperous fall and winter seasons. And despite the success and accolades that continue to come the way of Monashi Spirits, Josh and Jen never forget where it all began. Displayed prominently in the front window of the distillery is the small copper still that started it all.
Impossible by our underwriter, the Marketplace Restaurant. Founded in 1979 by the pioneering Mark Rosenstein and reimagined by chef William Disson a decade ago, the Marketplace is celebrating its 41st anniversary this year. Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant, the Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer, farmed by our neighbors. For more information on our underwriters or to find out how to support us through our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is a production of Dirty Spoon Media, copyright 2021. All the text from our stories is available on our website, dirty-spoon.com. There you can also catch up on past episodes as well as subscribe to the show and help us keep going through our Patreon. The incredible artwork on that website is by Katrin Doza, Ashley Icomedes, Corinne Pease, Kelly Minear, Garnett Fisher, Paul Choi, and Marianne Papineau. Music in this episode by Arlo Parks, Palm Poco, Field Music, Typhoon, Miss Grit, Piero Emiliani, Alessandro Alessandrini, Giorgio Gaslini, Chihai Hatakiyama, Darren Cafe Subtropic Orchestra, and Jersey Matuswich. Catherine Campbell is our editor-at-large, sources our stories, and handles our website and marketing. Jonathan Ammons is our editor-in-chief, handles the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and writes some of the original music. Tune in next month for more stories, conversations, and music from the people who shape what we consume right here on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour from WPVM.